Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, before we get started today, I want to make a special announcement and ask you for some help. Matthew Salisis was my guest on this program in episode 145. He's an author. Many of you out there may know him. If so, then you're probably aware that his wife, Catherine, was recently diagnosed with stomach cancer. Needless to say, they are dealing with quite a bit right now. And the reason I mention it is because there is a You Caring Fund set up to help support them. They have two young children. They have a lot of medical and travel expenses coming their way. And this You Caring Fund has been set up to help them offset some of these costs and to ease their burden a little bit. I donated to it. I hope that you will join me in donating and trying to help them out, whether it's $5, $10, 50, a hundred, a thousand, whatever you can afford, please donate. The link is you caring.com slash Matt and Catherine Salis is hyphen eight zero two four one four. I know that's a mouthful. So I've posted the link on the other people website. It's also on the other people, Facebook page, and I've linked it in the other people, Twitter feed. So I've put it in all three places, track it down, take a couple of minutes out of your life and help these people. They're good people, and they could use the assist. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. Welcome to the Other People program. Welcome to the Other People podcast. It's good to be with you. I am so pleased that Lydia Yuknovich is back here to talk to me for the third time celebrating the publication of her new novel, The Book of Joan, available now from Harper. Its official pub date was yesterday, April 18th. It is available now wherever books are sold. The Book of Joan by Lydia Yuknovich. It is the official April pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club. TheNervousBreakdown.com, for those of you who are uninitiated, is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. For more information on that, just go to TheNervousBreakdown.com. So before I get to the conversation with Lydia Yuknovich, I do want to read some mail. I've been doing that a lot lately here in the monologue. The trend will continue today. I just keep getting good letters that I want to share. So the first letter comes from a listener named Bill. He says, Dear Brad, I decided to quit my corporate gig and finish the novel I never get around to finishing. The decision was in no small way influenced 
by listening to you and your guests over the years, hearing about what a struggle it is for successful writers made it easier to envision as something that I could pull off or that I should at least try to pull off. My corporate job has always provided a blanket of rationalization that I could wrap myself in and feel better about the fact that I wasn't writing. Now I have no excuse not to finish the novel. When I get published, I will make sure to credit your influence. If I get crazy successful, I will refuse to give interviews to anyone but you. I will also tell people that you were my life coach, at which point you'll get an appearance on Oprah and eventually your own spinoff show. In the coming years, you'll be responsible for helping push a new writer into the world or for the slow erosion of my savings account, probably both actually, based on listening to your guests. Either way, I'll be happier. Signed, Bill. Well, Bill, that's wonderful news. Congratulations on quitting your corporate job, on tethering yourself from steady income, health benefits. Any semblance of security. <laughs> I mean, it's a big risk. Can't deny that. But I think it's a bigger risk to never try. If this is an itch that you really feel like you need to scratch, if this is something that has been bothering you for this long, you have to try. I would never say that you shouldn't try. I can't be that person. So congratulations. It takes courage to make that leap. You're now free-falling. You're plummeting at terminal velocity. <laughs> the rest of the fools out there. It's great. I'm flattered that uh, my show was able to influence you to make such an irresponsible decision with your life. It's always been the point of this show. I want as many people quitting their corporate jobs, trying to write novels, going completely broke as possible. I want that to be my legacy. The next, less, uh, next letter comes from a listener named Will. So I, I got letters from uh, Bill and Will. This one's from Will. He writes, Hi, Brad. I couldn't help but have a weird parasocial moment during your interview with Abigail Ullman when you brought up the fact that you've been watching the Netflix documentary series Chef's Table. I, too, am a big fan of the show, and as you expressed, I wish there was or could be a similar documentary series about writers. I feel like you are potentially in a position to make that show happen. You've already been talking for a while now about taking the podcast out on the road, visiting writers in their homes, doing the interviews there. I'm not going to try to claim that you've got connections all over Los Angeles, but there has to be at least one person with a camera and a talent for documentary filmmaking with nothing going on right now. Bring them along. Do interviews for a documentary instead of a podcast. Or do both. Signed, Will. Thanks, Will. You know, it's not a bad idea. It's an idea that I've entertained before. Like somehow making a version of this show for the screen. We're trying to do like a chef's table-y kind of program about writers. So here's where I get stuck, okay? Uh, chef's table. It's about food. Everybody likes food. People like to look at food. They like to watch people prepare food. They like to watch people eat food. Think about that. They like to sit in their house in front of a flat screen television and watch grown-ups eat food. It's kind of weird. But everybody likes food. Everybody's got to eat. I don't know anybody who doesn't like food. 
So when I start to think of doing a writerly version of chef's table, I ask myself the question, how many people out there like books? It's a much smaller audience. I hate to say it, but it's true. I certainly think that's what Hollywood film executives or television executives would tell you. Nobody reads. <laughs> uh, that's not to say that it couldn't be done. Everything always, of course, is about execution. So if you had the right author, I think you would have to have the right authors on the program. You'd have to feature the right people, people who are comfortable on camera, people who have a really compelling story to tell. Like, you know, memoir seems to be the most natural fit, though I suppose it could work for any genre. But if you had somebody who has a very compelling life story, it's very cinematic, dramatic, gruesome, what have you. I could see how that could be good television. Or you have somebody who has written a novel with a very distinct autobiographical through line and you then follow them around their hometown as they show you various places that served as settings for the book or whatever. Kind of like, kind of x-ray of a novel. The story behind the story. So I don't know. I think it's possible. Maybe I'll do it. If there are any television executives out there listening, you want to bankroll me to make a pilot? By all means. You can email me at letters at other ppl.com. And I'm also curious, you know, if anybody out there listening has an author that they think would be a perfect guest for a pilot episode of such a show, I'd be interested to hear if anybody's ideas. Is there somebody out there that I could interview or do a, a documentary about who has an incredible story to tell a story about their book or a story about their writing, or maybe just a story period. They raised by wolves. They like to talk about it. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Will. I appreciate that. And uh, again, if anybody out there wants to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once more is Lydia Yuknovich. Her new novel is called The Book of Joan. It is available now wherever books are sold from Harper. It is the official April pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. And I'm just thrilled to have Lydia back here on the program. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Lydia 
Yuknovich. I mean, I've, I've a little bit, I, I've creeped myself out uh, <laughs> with this book. Um, but I, the idea for it is, you know, years and years old. I had this tripartite desire to write about these three historical women, and one of them was Dora, and I wrote a novel about her, Freud's patient, and another was Joan, and then there's this third one, which is Mary Shelley, and that project's partially written. But I wasn't, I wasn't thinking, you know, in terms of our present tense reality, and I wrote Joan about two and a half years ago. So when I'm looking at it, I'm sort of scared of my own hands now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what came out. And maybe other people will read it and not really see, you know, really direct parallels. But to me, it's truly frightening, uh, particularly in terms of the um, antagonist in the book. Right. I, I, it, the only thing left to do would have been to make this character orange. Yeah. Or <laughs> this is the Jean de Man, is that right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so yeah, Jean de Men, like that, that, and and you say you wrote this two years ago, and I think two years ago, obviously the media landscape in our country was troubling for a variety of reasons. Politics always gives people plenty of reasons to be upset, but two years ago, I don't think anybody really believed that we would be sitting here with a President Trump and all that that entails. I don't think so, no. But somehow, we- but somehow, Jean de Men you know, prefigures that. Like some, somewhere in Lydia's brain, you knew it yeah. was coming. <laughs> so see why we should be scared of Lydia's brain. <laughs> it's really scary in there. Um, so so the idea for that character and the story is even older than two years, right? I mean, that was knocking around in my body for a while before I put it to page. And I was, however... I was very obsessed with celebrity culture and reality TV. And he was in my head with a whole, well, kind of like a basket of wealthy deplorables. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people I was figuring, he, he was in there, but he wasn't the main, you know, target or anything. Uh, but it's been, like I said, I, I creep myself out a little bit. But don't you think um, that writers are almost always sort of writing within their zeitgeist and some writers, you can't really track it in their work because it's not completely explicit. But other writers, you can see, you know, if you if you culled a cross section of us in 2016 or 17, you'd, you could track certain things that are kind of of the times or the ghost in the times. Um, I think so. I don't think it's just me, you know? No, no. I think think what what strikes me is that, you know, I guess some writers pay pay attention to this stuff or care about what's happening in politics, for example, more than others, even though they are writers of fiction. And so I think it's inevitable that writers wind up producing work that is a reflection of what they're taking in yeah, and what they're paying attention to. And uh, I'm always, I, I find it sort of uh, magical or mystical to think of how, you know, two years ago you were working on this and somehow your antenna was picking up signals. And 
<laughs> I, I mean, look, we, two years ago, there was reality TV culture. Uh, and right. I, th I think that this is what especially speculative fiction is, is supposed to do. You know, you're supposed to, to assimilate information and uh, speculate intelligently. It's like Philip K. Dick. You know, there's a whole tradition of this. And right. a, lot of t a lot of times fiction writers... Uh, you know, are ahead of the curve, uh, maybe to depressing effect, <laughs> but, but there we yeah. are. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And then we're sort of replaying out, you know, like we have little cameras in our skulls. We're replaying out and reprojecting some of the tensions of the times. I mean, the other thing that was on my mind was climate change and how do you get people to stop pretending like it's something in the distant future? <laughs> Right. <laughs> when we've already made the choices and it's our present tense. Well, and it's like, you know, it's a great conceit for a fiction to marry sci-fi, outer space, um, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the pioneers of outer space inhabiting uh, a space station, essentially, and existing out there. Uh, because it's not too far-fetched, you know right. what I'm saying? Like it feels very, to me, it feels very accurate in terms of what we might be looking at. And I've been reading, I just read um, a biography of Elon Musk recently, the, the SpaceX guy who wants to go to Mars and sort of leading the charge into, um, you know, moving the human species off of Earth and, in, and onto other planets. And th this is happening. Like this is what we're going to try to do. Like the the, right. the species is going to try to save itself Rather than, than take care of our, our natural home, we're just going to try to launch out to a, pla a planet that is basically barren for all we know. And the temperature is like, what, 130 below zero. Right. <laughs> Can't grow right. food. It doesn't seem like a very like uh, appealing place to go visit, but, but that, that's the plan, I guess. Well, and it's endlessly frustrating or enraging that, that that's where our minds go, you know, we're literally murdering the planet we live on, but instead of dealing with that fact, we pitch our desires elsewhere. Like, well, we fucked that up, so we better find a new rock. Um, I, you know, I'm not the first person to be frustrated by that, obviously. Right. Um, but I'm, you know, increasingly unable to tolerate um, my fellow mammals resistance to the idea that no, it's now it's now. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. The stakes are high. Yeah. And, um, you pretty soon it's going to be in people's backyards. That's really the, that's really the issue. I mean, you talk that's about, right. we like when I think of it from like a, an aerial perspective or whatever, you look at humanity and the way that it's behaving and the way that it sort of consumes and, um, you know, how, how poorly we treat other species, how greedily we suck up natural resources. And now we're heading yep. to other planets. Like it's, it's not a huge leap in my mind to think of us as a virus. Like, is that too, right. is that too yes. negative? Like, we... no. well, I mean, yeah, it's negative. It's so horrible. The other um, metaphor that comes to mind is like a metastasizing thing, which yeah. is even more depressing. Um, but I guess, those are the questions I was interested in in the book. Like, how do we unwrite these narratives we've created where we're forging ahead with bad ideas and bad tropes of, um, I was, I was trying to scratch at the trope of the war story and the love story and the, you know, 
survivalist story and who are we as a species on earth and and could we write back into those stories and and unwrite them and make a different trajectory <laughs> because we've just I just cannot imagine how we could have fucked ourselves worse at this point and until we start telling ourselves different stories about our relationship to the planet and each other it's going to barrel forward as if we have no control and I when did we become you know, I mean, this is sort of a naive question, but when did we become such, you know, pure, exclusive consumers that we can't even move our arms and legs unless we can buy something we've been told to buy? I just, like, I don't know. I sound old, don't I? Well, I, I know. I'm right, there, I'm right there. I'm right there with you. I feel like uh, I was looking, I was looking this morning at poll numbers and it's like 89% of registered Republicans approve of Trump right now. I know, and, and then I, I, like thirteen percent. I guess the flip was true with Obama, but I mean, like with Trump, it's like I I can't wrap my head around it. I can't wrap my head around how people seem to be living in separate universes right here in the same country. Like, how can we? I guess it has something to do with the media culture. You talk about how we start to unwrite these stories, and I, it has to come down to education and communication. We have to find a way to talk to each other. I know it. In a in a more constructive way. Right now, no one's talking to anyone. You just basically listen to whoever confirms your biases, and that's it. And you shake your head. Well, yeah. And so this antagonist I came up with has sort of won the world over with a story. Um, but I don't know if you remember, but I teach at a community college. Yeah. And so in, in very close to rural Oregon, it's Gresham, Oregon. And so every classroom contains some of the people who we're having trouble talking to if we're in the liberal category. And I, I, when you're a teacher, you don't quite have the luxury of just dismissing half the class <laughs> as, you know, well, I can't communicate with those people. But, you know, those are the sons and daughters of rural Oregonian people. A lot of their families are Trump voters. Um and so what's interesting about the classroom is you have to use the landscape or territory of ideas and talk them into entering that landscape with you. Like, you know, you're literally walking into um, a real environment, like a virtual reality. And, and if you can talk them into walking in there with you, then you have to be really careful not to be an abusive, insulting asshole with your righteous, you know, I'm liberal ideas. Um, and I, I've probably learned the most about, well, how the hell do you talk to people who don't agree with you from those rooms? I mean, um, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I mean, it's <laughs> I, like, I can't just go, if, ah, your whole family's full of shit. And so I can't teach you American literature. <laughs> right, right. No, it's like, it sounds, it actually sounds pleasant to me to be in a forced environment because you know, people don't socialize and talk, I, I think, deeply about consequential matters very often at all, even if you're even even people who agree with one another, you know, like yeah. as as citizens, like how often are we in spaces where we are engaging like this? If it's not right. in a, if it's not in an academic context, otherwise, it's like the holiday dinner table where like 
horrible. Know, Uncle Joe says something racist and everyone just gets quiet or, you know, like. Yeah, well, that's all of us now, right? Everybody's yeah. got, everybody's got the Uncle Joe. At least one, you know, and it's like, but I mean, even then, even then, though, I think a lot of times people just shelve that kind of talk because they don't want to get into it. They don't want to ruin the supper or whatever. And so it's like, where do you have these dialogues? You have them on social media, but there you can tune out anybody who upsets you, you right. know, and you can kind of just refine, you can create your own little media universe. So uh, it sounds gl glorious to me, actually, to be in a, in, an, in a space where people are being civil. There's a commitment to civil discourse. Uh, but mostly, mostly, but, <laughs> but, you know, but, but like no one's going to hopefully get up and start throwing punches or storm out of the room. Like there can be, some, I hear you. there can I be, hear you. there could be some emotion and sh there probably should be some emotion, but we need that sort of dialogue and I need it because I want to understand people who are coming at life from such a different vantage point. And I would hope well, that yeah. they, they would want to understand me. You know, what helps is to have as our neutral object, you know, a piece of literature. And that's one of the reasons, even though I sound kind of smarmy every time I say that, <laughs> literature is a real place. And when the thing you're talking about is a novel, and we all go inside the novel together, and we talk about language and ideas and passions and violences and desires... We're not talking about your dad, exactly. We're right. not talking about what you did in the voting booth. But we're actually drawing out the deepest human emotions and possibilities for empathy and understanding just because we're inside a book. And the idea that books, you know, might be one of the things attacked yet again in this sort of national value system obviously makes me want to take a tire iron to something. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, again, God damn it. Well, but it is. I mean, art is a, a way, it is a way to bring people of differing viewpoints together. It is kind of a, a safer space or something, you know, like I think I, for whatever reason, when you were saying that, I just thought to myself, like Ann Coulter is a deadhead, you know, like, <laughs> but, but, you know, I think she really is. Like, I think she genuinely likes that, you know, she was actually into it. And I try to countenance that because I was kind of into that and it's like, yeah. oh shit, like maybe... <laughs> How do you, how do you, maybe that's a bridge, you know, and then you, you talk about having a conversation about a book and, um, it's, it provides some layer of insulation. I think so. And also, uh, freedom from all the baggage we're each carrying about our own righteous, you know, thoughts, opinions, and feelings. It, it's like some, I mean, you still carry that shit with you, but if you're going to a concert or you're inside a novel or you're, staring at paintings there's this other term that loosens the sediments up enough that you know you really can stand next to a person you may loathe and admire something together yeah i mean i think back to like i have some more conservative friends that i went to college with or whatever and we went to like we had like shared experiences in our late teens early 20s where like, you know, it's like psychedelic and it's all the stuff of youth, you know, there's music and I'd come out of one of these experiences like, oh my God, like we're all one. Like this is yeah. just, a, this is just an illusion. And then like, I look at my, my friends, I think would come out of it and they'd be like, yeah, I love capitalism. And 
<laughs> do, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I mean, I'm I, I'm I'm jumping ahead several steps, but I guess my point is that we really had completely different takes. Yeah. Uh, and I guess there's got to be space for that. I mean, that's that's the dialogue. That's the space that we have to talk across somehow. I guess so, but we have to. I'm still trying to figure out how to transform my rage. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're doing a pretty good job. You're making books. You're making Thank books. You. You're making books out of your rage. And I want to ask you because you talked about this earlier with respect to um, this what, tripartite idea you had with respect. Oh yeah. You know, you had Dora, the Freud patient. You have yeah. Joan of Arc, and then yeah. you're working on a project involving Mary Shelley. Like, what is it about those three women? Well. I, for one thing, I just thought it would make a great, you know, kind of like a CD pack. <laughs> These three <laughs> novels just live together. Um, but what what about them is uh, I was visited in dreams by all three of them, in addition to being obsessed with them my whole life, starting in my, you know, adolescence years. Um, I got visited in dreams by these people. And uh, so on the one hand, that sounds sort of silly and a little bit woo. But on the other hand, I take my dreams pretty seriously. So wait, t- t- like, let's slow down here. Like, tell me about <laughs> tell me about for just for starters, like the Joan of Arc dream. How did she appear to you in a dream? The Joan of Arc dream um, started off when I was pretty young, and in the dream, my house was on fire, my family house, which was sort of true emotionally I came from an abusive household and in the dream my house was on fire and I was in the front yard um, watching the house burn and she came walking out of the burning house fire and I already knew who she was because I was raised Catholic and my older sister had chosen the name Jeanne for her middle name when she was confirmed so even as a little girl, I, I knew who it was. I mean, I didn't have an intellectual understanding, but I knew who Joan of Arc was. So I recognized her, you know, like, oh, it's that lady in the armor with the sword, <laughs> and the short hair. And um, in the dream, I was about like, you know, five or six years old. And what she said to me in the dream, I'm embarrassed to tell you. No, I love this shit. Tell me, please. <laughs> But what she said was, uh, no one's going to save your life. You have to do it yourself. And that meant nothing to me when I was little, except it kind of, it was something I kept in my head because um, it helped me be less scared at night, this weird lady that visited me in a dream. But as I got a tiny bit older, um that dream and what she said and who she was, you know, I learned more about her. And so by the time I was a teenager, I sort of, she became emblazoned in my head and heart as this hope figure, this, you know, to me, she was like this woman made of fire um, that the whole world for a historical moment was listening to. And instead of her being this terribly tragic figure who was burned at the stake, um, literally, she became, you know, a woman of fire that was partly something I could embrace as a girl who had too much rage and was trying to get out of her house, 
you know, get away from home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so, like, so wait, just so I'm clear, how old were you when you had the dream? You were five or six in the dream? And I then- was five or six in the dream. I was about 10 when I had the dream. And so, you know, 10 years old, I, I remembered the phrase and the image was huge. Like I never forgot the image, but by the time I was a teenager, I was making a story about it. I was sort of embracing her as my alternative story of her as a heroine, you know, it was like, fuck what Catholicism was telling me she was. <laughs> I preferred this other story I made in my head where she's just this firewoman and, um, that you have to become that in your own life sometimes is the narrative I kind of forged. Yeah. I mean, she, I mean, she is a remarkably resilient historical figure, like her, her story, um, continues to be told and retold. And she was, she was dead at 19, right? I mean, this is not somebody who had a a lot of time on the planet to make her mark and yet, and yet make it, she did. Like, why do you think it's so resonant? Well, she convinced a monarch to go to war and I don't know what you were doing when you were 19 (laughs) (laughs) or, you know, from the ages of 15 to 18, I think I was still eating scabs off my knees. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, same with Mary Shelley. She was 18, 17. Uh, I, I just, these young, you know, girl women, these, these young adult women who were, who had this power to change an entire historical moment blows, just blows my mind, um, literally, you know, but I think for women in general, anywhere that we're always looking for figures we can embrace or look up to, or, you know, just imagine in terms of the own trials we face in our lives. And there aren't very many. And what you're left with is celebrity culture which is horrifying. Um, so um, I think the fact that she was also a warrior, you know, like a soldier, was mind-boggling to me because I, I couldn't pluck out of history very many other women warriors. Um, the fact that she heard voices was a big deal to me because I heard voices as a kid and I was diagnosed, medica- diagnosed as... Um, audio hallucinatory and I had to take medication for a while. So the fact that she heard voices only it was earth changing was a big deal. And and then lastly I think um I don't know, I just the the girl who went to war and won and then was burned for it. She's the only other body in my entire lifetime that for me could hold its own against the Christ body and hmm. a whole belief system was forged out of this beautiful white man hanging from a cross. Um, you know, an entire theology got born from that and her burned body to me was, um, had that kind of weight. And so I was pissed off the rest of my life that her burned body hadn't created a theology of its own for like this army of women. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. It's funny. I, I, uh, I recently read this book. Um, what's it called? Zealot. The re- it's like a read by Reza Aslan. It's like the, basically a, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a history of Christ, like trying to wrap my head around that whole story and then how it birthed this theology. 
And, uh, you know, like it's, it's almost feels like an accident or not an accident, but it's just such an unlikely story, you know, that these people start writing. I mean, she has her own, I think Joan has her own mythos and she certainly has her fans, you know, but it just, it didn't, uh, is metastasized the wrong word, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like it just didn't grow into a religion, at least not yet. Well, I mean, I don't want to sound all extra feministy and gender bias, but I don't think it was nothing that this woman sort of was rising in terms of might and intelligence and power and myth-making abilities. And the second she wasn't doing what the control system wanted her to do, she was deemed heretical and, you know, you could pretty easily make a theory that the church is the reason there's not a bigger story. Right. You know, and it's funny that you, you know, you're making me think of all these, I don't know about you, but I've been reading entirely too many think pieces and hot takes on what's happening in our world right now. And (laughs) I've been seeing, you know, you do enough of that and you spend enough time on Twitter, you know, scrolling through all the different voices out there chattering. Like I've started, I've started to see a consistent, um, echo, from people who characterize the current moment as the patriarchy trying to reestablish itself right. as like a, a very like overt, crude, masculine energy trying to, um, I don't know, change, like change the power dynamic or roll the power dynamic back. And it's not, a, it's not necessarily a good moment for women in our politics. No. No, or people of color, or LGBT people, or really anyone who isn't of the privileged, you know, dominant class, and so children and prisoners and people with mental difficulties and physical disabilities. There's, it, it's not as clear cut as it's a resurgence of patriarchy. Right. <laughs> although, although in terms of who's driving the car and what they explicitly out loud say they want and the return of a kind of Christian and economic nationalism, which Brannon is mouths off about all the time. Maybe it is that obvious. Maybe, maybe you could look at it that way. I try not to look at things without complexity and contradiction and nuance, but Jesus. Well, well, no, I mean, I, like, and I'm also thinking of like Fox News and all the revela- yeah. all the revelations coming out of there. Like, you can't help but see this very clear parallel between the news organization, which is essentially a mouthpiece for uh, present day right wing politics, and its entire power structure. The entire culture yeah. of the place was predicated on this uh, abusive patriarchal, um, you know, it's a sick culture. I mean, and you just, the stories just keep pouring forth and it's, you know, if you take things in context, it's not really all that shocking. It's disturbing, but I can't say that I'm shocked that Fox news and Roger Ailes turn out to be a bunch of creeps. No, no. How is that surprising in any way, shape or form? And so you can understand, even though it makes everybody uncomfortable to admit, you can understand why women as a historical group, are sort of crossing arms and shaking our heads and kind of muttering under our breath, like we keep telling you. Yeah. <laughs> there is 
a structure of social organization where women must be maintained as objects to service a quite male agency. And uh, that, that women have been telling that story since Christ times, really, and that we're still here and we're still having to point at it and go, you guys. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very good this moment. It's a very, a very good moment for a retelling of the Joan of Arc story. I'm thinking so too. <laughs> right? <laughs> the moment cries out for it, I think. Um, I want to ask you about something you spoke of just a couple of minutes ago with respect to Joan and how she heard voices and how you say that you have heard voices in your life like is this something that still happens is this something that was exclusive to childhood can you just talk about that a little more it was exclusive to childhood and um adolescence and i was prescribed lithium for a little while which is what was done back then which is horrific if you think about it it's it was the worst idea ever um and then yeah it did recede as in my college years shockingly after i left home <laughs> Um, and then it didn't come back until I had some sort of extra fun new trauma in my adult life in my sort of mid thirties, um, when my daughter died and, and also my dad drowned in the ocean and I pulled him out. The, the voice stuff came back. And so I went straight into therapy because I was terrified, um, and I've been able to work it out. It, it's gone again. But I have a keen and deep and obsessive interest in those of us on the planet who experience this voices thing. And um, I'm I'm committed to interrupting the storyline that we're sick or insane or, you know, I think in a way you could say all artists hear voices, just some of them are louder for some of us. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so, that... for, so for me, it's been literally true and, and kind of socially and figuratively interesting to me. And how does it, like, how does it manifest when it's happening? Like, I mean, I know as an, as a fellow writer, like, you know, when you're writing dialogue or whatever, you're hearing, you're, you're hearing the characters talk in your head, but is this akin to that or is it more intense? It's akin to that, but it's more like you hear me now. So yeah, we imagine voices when we're making characters as writers, and and artists hear things. But it, it, the difference is the auditory auditory um, realness of it. It's it's more like I hear you and how you hear me right now. Wow. You know enough that you would turn your head. Yeah, which was happening when I was driving. It's <laughs> <So that was laughs> not good. <laughs> and, um, and is it trauma related? I mean, is that what the trigger is? Well, I don't think that that would be a blanket statement. You could say for everyone. Uh, for me, it certainly it certainly was. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, you know, do you feel that there's a, a, a parallel? with the intensity of your of your dreams you know because like i i i gotta say there's a part of me that envies this like <laughs> having like i can't remember a damn thing from when i was 10 years old much less a dream like i can't remember what i dreamed last night so it's like i hear you you have like this really active 
I, I don't know what the word for it is. Is it dream? Li- I guess dream life or imagination or I don't know, well, just like in- intensity of experience that. Clearly, it's my portal to aliens. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Obviously. <laughs> well, I mean, like you, I don't remember my other dreams as a 10-year-old. Well, there's one that involves oceans and water. But, you know, I don't either. Or today, I don't remember all my dreams. But, you know, when Mary Shelley shows up in this perfect dark green velvet dress that you can touch and sits down next to your bed and talks to you, you're going to remember <laughs> Damn. So that's what that's what that one was? Yeah. What did she say? Well, she said um, the sentence, motherhood is not monsterhood, uh, which at the time didn't mean jack shit to me, except it was sort of cool. And and I memorized it. I thought it was interesting. And I was pretty scared by the dream, too, because it seemed very, very, very real. Um, And then later in life, when my daughter died, that sentence, you know, is part of what saved my life. I, I read all about Mary Shelley, and she had child births and child deaths, and that's how I found out who Mary Wollstonecraft was. And I read about their entire lineage and bodies, and um, in a way, you know, her visit and that sentence brought me to their writing and this women's literature that. So it's not just this sentence became mantra-ish for me when I had a, a death in my own body and life. But, you know, their writing, their literature helped keep me from drowning. So talk about prescient. <laughs> I mean, when she said it in the dream, I was nowhere near having a baby. But later in life, you know, jeez, oh, I guess it probably sounds weird or like an overstatement, but that sentence truly, truly saved me from the insanity of grief. Wow. Yeah. And I can just, so for listeners who might be hearing Lydia and I in conversation for the first time, like you and I have talked about this on preceding episodes. So I want to make sure that, you know, if you want more context, go there, but I don't want to, I don't want to revisit it uh, simply because we've talked about it at length before. Um, and so I, I guess the, the next natural question for me then is uh, Dora, because that's the one dream we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, is, there yeah. so, is there something, is there a, like a lesson that she imparted? That... Well, yes, except it wasn't an individual line that I then memorized. The thing about her is she woke me up out of a, and her real name was Ida Bauer. She woke me out out of a dead sleep and as a teenage girl screaming at me, like yelling. So I don't even remember exactly what she said. The point was that you were supposed to wake up (laughs) because this teen girl was pissed and everybody was misunderstanding everything about everything, you know, a kind of teen tantrum thing. And so the overriding feeling I was left with was sort of go back and get the story, you asshole. (laughs) What was the what was the context in your life when you know what I'm saying? Like, what was she? What do you think she was trying to wake you up from? Well, it was after I first became a college teacher. So it was after I got my PhD, and I was in my first classrooms that were you know mine alone, (laughs) where I was teacher lady up front. And so I don't, you know, I'm making a narrative up to rationalize this dream I had, but. 
partly what it felt like was, okay, you've got a chance. All these young women, and I guess men too, but at the time especially, all these young women are going to come through these rooms that you're going to share with them. Don't fuck it up. You know, try to help them liberate their stories. Try to listen to them. Don't let their stories get subsumed into the larger male narrative of who they're supposed to be. So that's the sense I made of it. But I mean, you know, I'm kind of making that up. But those were the feelings I was left with. Like, do not leave the raging young adult girl alone. Do not abandon her. Yeah, well, you know, like, that's, it's nice to hear you say that as a teacher of writing and literature. I felt uh, in the years that I taught a very similar sense of just don't fuck them up. Like, cause that's it, right. When you have somebody, especially who is young or, or even if they're not necessarily chronologically young, but they're young in terms of their creative life and they're just getting started. Right. And you read something that they've written that's an early effort there was always this sense within me of like, don't say too much. Right. Uh, be careful what you say. Cause you could, you could poison the well for this person. That's right. That's right. And a thing I hate about academia is, I mean, the message I was getting in my body, even if I couldn't make a sentence out of it from that dream was don't put their fire out, figure out how to help them express their fire. You know, don't put it out. And in that way, it's not unrelated to Joan. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and that dream. Have you had, you? I mean, if you had successes with students where you feel like you have helped them uh, in a really um, clear way, like, you know what I'm saying? You've seen a, a student uh, write a book or you've seen a student. Oh, God, yes. I mean, I've been doing this almost 30 years. I wouldn't say that it had much to do with me, except in the way you just described where I can say that with some degree of success I was able to get out of the way and help them um, fully express themselves be because the alternative would have been a kind of form of self-destruction and that I know for a fact I helped I helped get them towards self-expression rather than self-destruction and it's so beautiful it's so beautiful I mean I could list hundreds of people who you know, they went out in the world and made their own beautiful fires, little fires everywhere. <laughs> and um, I don't feel like I did that. I feel like I got out of the way and held the door open instead of trying to take it away from them. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes just like a word of encouragement. I mean, there's always like there's the famous like... Uh... With Flannery O'Connor line, like there's too many creative writing students. I'm butchering it, but you know, there, there, <laughs> there can be sort of an eye roll and that there can be an attitude, I think, taken that, you know, there people are being encouraged too much. You see what I I'm saying? You. you know, and I guess you're trying to strike a balance between wanting to give somebody in, like false encouragement or encouragement that they don't necessarily need or deserve. Do you, do you see what yeah, I'm saying? Like, how do you, do. how do you parse it? You know? Well, uh, for one thing, I don't think everybody who's working with me should or needs to become a writer. I mean, it's their life to figure out what form they should, you know, run with and become. And so that joy I was just describing about their ecstatic states as they go out into the world, that doesn't mean they're all going to be writers. One of my the people I worked with who 
is among my favorite experiences in teaching, became a neuroscientist. And um, in fact, I've been on the phone with her trying to write the Mary Shelley story because <laughs> I needed some science-y stuff. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, and so I don't even mean that they should all become writers. And I think that criticism is a little bit bullshit. Nobody knows who the next writers are going to be. So encourage everyone and, and let them let them walk out of the door with burning self-esteem. What do you have? Maybe, maybe uh, some of them become writers. Maybe some of them become something else. So what? So, and what do you do? Like, let's say you have a student who obviously has some story to tell or a fire they want to, they want to build, but is blocked. Like, how do you as a teacher help somebody unlock themselves a little bit? Well, my prompts are pretty weird. <laughs> so there's that, but what's, a, what's, a, what's part, a Lydia Yuknovich prompt? Oh, synesthesia. Any, any way I can get somebody and this is in non-academic classrooms too. Any way I can get somebody to consider the idea and experiment with and play with synesthesia turns into a really great piece of writing or just explorative, um, explorative, you know, journeying. Because uh, synesthesia is just fantastic in a general sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Another one is um, that yields endlessly is how is your body exactly like a second version of the entire cosmos <laughs> that's the prompt yeah and what, what do you what do, what do you what do you get in return for that one everything <laughs> see i'm but i'm see that's the sort of prompt i'm, I'm way down with that that the idea because like this like the you know this is where we can get into sciencey stuff but yeah there are facts about the human body like for example the space between electrons and an atom is even greater, you know, proportionally to yes. the space between stars and space. Exactly. You know, that sort of stuff trips me out endlessly. And then the, uh, the obviously the water content of the human body per, yep. as a percentage is uh, mirroring the more or less the water content yep. of the planet, you know, like See? there are all these symmetries. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so here's the answer by the way I help people open themselves up to their own creativity is by abandoning academia as a set of rules and limitations. Yeah. And by the way, the Joan book is filled with nerdgasm stuff. Like there's, there's all kind of stuff in it that nobody but me or maybe two other people will care about. That's about string theory and, <laughs> and all kind of, um, astrophysics stuff well, that's yeah, woven all through it. But I see, I think I might, I'm, I'm nerding out on this with you. Cause I feel like there is, I, I've lately been fascinated by the ways in which, um, things like, um, quantum physics, and Eastern mysticism dovetail yep. like not that this is an old or not that this is a brand new argument like there have been people saying this for decades now but I think that as the science becomes more and more refined and I guess as the mysticism does the same there really is a synergy like that re there yes. really there are a ton of similarities to be explored that 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 to me seems like um, those are deep waters to explore yes and I mean I've been mouthing off lately um, 
that it's really cool how physics and quantum physics have finally caught up to indigenous culture knowledge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, a helix is forming in our understanding that's really exciting. And so when people ask me if this Joan of Arc book is depressing, I'm like, no, it's filled with hope because it's marrying, it's moving away from theology as we've inherited it and moving toward this helix you and I are talking about right now where we would we would move to a new form of understanding and consciousness that that isn't tethered to the the old tropes and the old narratives that we've understood ourselves within. Is it, is you it, are a nerd. I, I, I didn't already know that. I know. I'm, I'm, I guess I, I guess the cat's out of the bag on that one. But I'm think, yeah, so, I'm I'm thinking uh, of the body, which uh, you know I know is a theme in your work and something that you, um, you know, like we're talking about. You you think deeply about this, but it is amazing to me how people generally, myself included, like I'm often like not in my body, like I'm not in touch with it. You know, mm -hmm. like the fact that I have this weird body that works and, you know, has all this stuff in it. Like it's, a, I, I don't know. I, it's a hard thing to even uh, articulate. I don't know if you're getting what I'm saying, but just an awareness, you know, like a basic fundamental awareness of the body, of being in, in a body. It's an easy thing to forget when you get caught up in the static of your thoughts and in the busyness of your daily life. And For sure, for sure. And nothing in our contemporary culture is geared toward you having a deep understanding of your corporeality. Everything about our lives is drawing us away from our own bodies. And I'm not saying that to like critique technology or, you know, or say it's bad that our, our technological and scientific achievements are bringing us away from the body. I'm not saying that, but I do think it's almost doubly important because we're so technologically advanced probably not compared to extraterrestrial cultures, but to ourselves, um, that we reinvestigate what it is to be in these bodies. I think it's, we've hit a moment in time where we really need to re-examine what physical lived experience is. And perhaps the new story is closer to what you were just talking about when we were talking about space versus the body or, or physics and, and, um, just the way the universe is built being a part of the story of one body that would, you know, maybe the story's going there, but we'd have to, we'd have to agree to look again at what it means to be in a body. And that's really hard. Well, it's really weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, people, I mean, a few things come to mind. First of all, I think of the book of Joan and the, the, the way the characters mutilate their flesh and tell stories <laughs> on their flesh. I mean, that's, that's it right there, you know? And, yeah. and, uh, and then I'm thinking of a quote, there's a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist monk, uh, yeah. who I'm a huge fan of. And it's just like a, a, not a throwaway line, but it's not some big pronouncement he made, but it's a, it's a line that always stuck with me. And he said once, uh, you know, you spend three hours with a computer and you forget that you have a body. Right. And I've repeated it to myself and to others. And whenever I say it, people laugh a little bit, it seems like, or they smile. And it's like, and I do the same because it describes a very real thing. You know, like when you're lost in the internet, or at least when I'm lost in the internet, it truly mm -hmm. is like an out of body experience. You can get so deep into it 
And for a couple hours, you're sitting there just like jumping from page to page and getting wound up and reading news stories and chatting on social media. And then mm -hmm. all, all of a sudden you, you sort of finish that and you come back into yourself and realize like that. I don't know. You know what you see what I'm saying? There's like a, I totally see what you're saying. Uh, there's so many different ways to think about it though. Like what if that state you're talking about, what if that state you're talking about is uh, a form of losing ego and kind of a moment where you're moving particles more than how we normally think of ourselves walking around, you know, like, like, the particles involved on the internet and, you know, light zooming around in the, what if that's a, an ego, uh, breakdown moment? That's not necessarily a negative thing. What if that's a state we could look at and see what's in there? So that's one thing it makes me think of. Yeah. Well, that's, no, and it's not necessarily bad, right? Well, yeah, no, I, I cause it's, there, there's the, some of the laughter, which I, I didn't say when I, when I first mentioned it, but some of the laughter that, I, I get from that line, you know, when you sit with your computer mm -hmm. for three hours, you forget that you have a body. A lot of times people will say like, that's exactly why I sit with my computer. Cause I don't want to yeah. remember that I have a body. And yeah. I think a lot of people in their behaviors, uh, myself included, sure. Like, uh, surely probably do. We probably do a lot of what we do because it's, you know, it's not all roses to have a body, you know, this thing, <laughs> this thing naturally breaks down, you know, <laughs> like right. there, there's a dark side. And I think sometimes right. that, you know, the, the physical reality of existence uh, can be a heavy burden. I hear you. And so I have kind of invented and, and am teaching these non-academic workshops in my life called corporeal writing. And part of what we do in the workshops, in the generative workshops, is I try to help people start asking themselves what stories are their bodies carrying. And I mean literally like your hip or your spine or your clavicle. And I'm trying to give a speed <laughs> description of this. But what starts coming out when you start asking your body questions, not about what we've been told we're supposed to be or what a life is supposed to be or what you're supposed to feel and what success is and what failure is in life, but what literally your shoulder, what stories is your shoulder carrying? And we let ourselves, you know, be really loose and not judgy. And we can even draw pictures while we're doing it. The stories that are coming out are telling us something different about our own lives than, you know, we've understood ourselves as for our whole lives. And I think there's something to the idea that if you ask your body different questions, and if it's true that a body is a metaphor for all human experiences, then it's carrying the sum total of every story of your life and probably other lives. And so I think that's what I meant by we might have this chance to start understanding the human body and our place in it differently. But we kind of have to let go of the old way of thinking about it where we're kind of annoyed in the way you described a second ago, that it's kind of breaks down and it's too fat or it's too thin or it's sick or it has ailments or, but what if it's carrying like our next consciousness moment? We just haven't asked it the right questions yet. Yeah. And like, I, you know, and you also, you alluded to like, uh, you know, I don't know if you said it exactly this way, but past lives or I, I think of all, like just the fact that like in my body, 
the DNA of all of my ancestors, yep. like not yep. just not just my parents, but my parents' parents, their parents, like all the way back through the ages, like all yep. of all of that in some way lives on in us. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of information in this vessel, you know, <laughs> like correct. Um, and I think I, I lose sight of that sometimes. It's like helpful for me to remember that. I also think it's interesting when it comes to. Like I think of in particular, like, uh, you know, one's relationship with one's family, like however mm -hmm. difficult or enriching it might be, um, you know, usually it's somewhere in the middle. Uh, like it's helpful for me to remember that like you can't get away, right? You're carrying these people within you, you know, yep. <laughs> like, uh, Kinda. And I, yeah. And I think that the, I think that the reflex a lot of times when things get tough or if things are very difficult is to just run, but you, you, you kind of can't at some point you got to reconcile with it. Right. Agreed. Agreed. It's one of the saving graces for me about having ended up sort of accidentally as a writer is I can give them voices and stories and pages and it's a, it's something to do with all this crap we're carrying inside us that is transformative. It's, it's, uh, you know, like with the voices, it's something to do with the fact that I heard voices besides take these drugs and be institutionalized. And it's something to do with what we're carrying around is to make art or make love or, you know, quote unquote, do something with what we're discovering really is inside us after all this time. Well, but it's, it's exciting. It's not a bummer. <laughs> no, no. And, and, but yeah, no, it's, it, it's exciting because it's, it seems like, um, like that's, that's alchemy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's like, yes. it's a healthy, it's a healthy way of processing it rather than, um, you know, numbing yourself with drugs or running away from it in some other way. And it's ultimately futile. And, uh, you know, you, you've said a couple times, uh, over the hour, you know, that you're trying to figure out creatively what to do with, rage like the word rage right. the word rage has come out of your mouth a couple times and yeah uh, i was reading recently god what was it it was like uh it could it, it could be something out of a book or it could be literally like a quote from the internet <laughs> it's it's <laughs> I, you know it's a muddle but i it, it stuck with me and it was basically a line about trying to figure out what to write next and the person said something to the effect of well, start with what's angering you. Like, where's your anger? Like that usually is a good place to begin when you're trying to settle on what you need to be writing about. Like, do, do you agree with that? Like, do you, is that the way that you work? Like, do you, do you try to locate that sense of rage within you or something that's really bothering you and then try to alchemize it? Um, not exactly like that, but not completely unlike that. So I would probably ask, where does rage live in your body today, right now? And, okay, if you could locate where rage lives on your body, what's the story there? And, like, free writing in that area would generate some material, right? But then you're not done. Then I would ask, okay, now write about what is the story underneath the thing you just wrote, if I made you answer that question, and see what comes out of that. So you have to take this rage idea through several layers of thought and feeling and expression before you get to any concept of 
what shape is your rage? Does it have a gestalt? Does it have a history? Where is it living on your body? What's it connected to in your history and your community? You know, like you have to do a bunch of layers. Yeah. You can't just say, what am I pissed about? Okay, I'll write a page about that. <laughs> right. Well, so it's it's like a deep process. Yeah, and it's like it, it's a, it, it makes me think of how, how it, it's crazy to me how even people who go into the creative process with the best of intentions and the most willingness or like, you know, the utmost willingness to be open and honest on the page. And yet, uh, at least for me, it's always been the case that like it's four, five, six, seven, ten, twelve drafts in where yeah. you finally get to the heart of it. And sometimes, yes. oftentimes it's surprising and you're like, wow, this is, this is what I was feeling or this is what I was driving at. And takes a while to just figure that out i don't know secular amen yes yeah yes so much and um that's an impatient of beginning writers that's an impatient <laughs> part uh for them but absolutely and uh pretty much everything in life is like that as well though you have you have to travel the different layers before you get anywhere and if you're just skimming the surface of anything in life you know you're not receiving the whole thing. Hmm. But yeah, rage, rage, you know, I think everybody should be exploring their rage right now. And I think we need to radically redefine what we mean by things like rage and love and empathy and compassion, because clearly we've missed a few layers. <laughs> yeah. Like let's, let's talk about rage because it's not necessarily, it doesn't have uh a pleasant connotation, you know, I think people think of rage, they think of somebody who's, uh, you know, throwing Molotov cocktails or punching, you know, punching someone or like, but like, what is it for you? And what is it, I guess, for you yeah, specifically yeah. In, the, in the creative space? Well, for me, it's, um, and I'm not claiming to be right about this in any way, shape or form. But for me, it's a it's an emotional energy. And yeah, rage can come to violent and terrible ends. But that's not the same question. Uh, it is an energy exactly like other energies, and as such, you know, can have more than one possible shape or trajectory or aim. And I'm always reminded of um, Aikido um, when I when I'm trying to decide how to um, process my own rage or what to quote unquote do with it. I love the art of Aikido as a um, thing to meditate on because it's it's a way of receiving harsh energy coming toward you and reshaping it instead of what you would knee-jerk do, which is try to defend yourself or punch back. In Aikido, it's like energy is always moving, and so the idea is to change the motion of the energy and I, and I like thinking about rage that way. I like, you know, you can't always, if you're in a moment that has no time, <laughs> you have to just respond. Nobody can be eloquent and beautifully move the energy. <laughs> Not unless you're but, like, it's like the Bruce Lee of, exactly. of you know. But that's my whole jam. Be as water is my personal mantra. Like I carry that around in my head every day. I say it to myself every morning. So... Bruce Lee is like my savior. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the guy. <laughs> Bruce Lee and Joan of Arc. It's all that's coming together. 
That's it. So uh, the Book of Joan movie rights sold, I saw. Is that movie, is there something happening there? Is it all just in, like, is it the way that things often are when it comes to adaptations where the rights have sold and the movie may or may not get made? Like, what's the status? Well, that's always the story, right? So the option, it's been optioned. And so that can mean absolutely nothing because the option runs out and the movie never gets made. And, and you know, the person who optioned it isn't going to buy the movie itself. But it has been optioned by someone who's really excited. And that's not nothing right. <laughs> because it adds a layer of enthusiasm. And it's an experienced person who knows how to fundraise. And so, like you said, and maybe... You know, I don't think writers know this very well, but lots of people's work gets optioned and it doesn't amount to anything ever. And then occasionally it does. So where I am right now is it's been optioned. I'm excited because you have to you have to let yourself be excited for at least a week. Yeah. Let yourself have a <laughs> let yourself have a week for God's sake. <laughs> and on the other hand, I'm not, you know, out there pretending like, you know, anything other than an option has happened yet. Well, but it's very exciting. Yeah. And it's, a, I mean, it's, and it's a, it's a cinematic, I mean, it's a cinematic, it's a story with cinematic potential. And not only that, it would operate in a, I think a pretty grand tradition. I mean, Joan has been going back to, I think my favorite silent film ever, the passion of Joan of Arc. I don't know if you've ever seen yeah, that. About 300 times. I mean, it's the, to me that, I mean, the, the performance, and I'm going to blank on that actress's name and I shouldn't because she's magnificent. Like it's one of the great, screen performances ever because her face uh, yeah it, i mean it's like it's moving and and it's uh falconetti yeah that's right marie falconetti is that it or something but it might be antonia okay but she uh if, if you if listeners out there have never seen it i'm sure you can probably oh, God, watch yes. it on youtube or watch it somewhere it's uh it's just a spectacular film and it's amazing how much success uh the filmmaker had in getting me invested you know, cause silent films don't usually do that to me. You know, it's unique. It, I know, it, but it, that one is extraordinary. Yeah. Unique power and, and a, an amazing performance. And so, you know, whoever winds up taking the lead of, uh, the book of Joan, uh, she's gotta, she's gotta measure herself against that performance. <laughs> no, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> uh, yeah. So last question, uh, before I let you go, and I've been asking this of, uh, recent guests, because I ask this of everybody, but uh, you know, also people that I talk to for this show is when we think about the moment that we're in now, mm -hmm. like what's the way forward? How do we, how does it end? Like, how do we, you know what I'm saying? How do you see this unfolding? Do you have a vision? Ha have you had a dream? <laughs> is it, <laughs> has anyone come to you in the night and told you what, what's going to happen? Like what is, yeah, you know, you know, that creature in the movie arrival, <laughs> Yes. That thing came to me, Edward. We have nothing to fear because the extraterrestrials are so much smarter than us. And they're going to give us another language. And it's all going to be fun. Actually, I'm only kind of kidding because I truly loved that movie. And if you haven't seen it, you should see it because the whole um, how you make a new reality is to learn this new language is right up my alley with the Joan book. But I think the Joan book is kind of my answer. I think we're going to have to completely revise 
the stories we've been using as the sort of backbone to culture, I think we'll have to change the self story and the love story and the war story and the survival story. And it, it's time to let go of the stories we once used to explain our reality to ourselves. They don't work anymore. And it, until, until we step up and rewrite ourselves, we're just reacting. Who do you think, and, and do, do writers of fiction, do storytellers in our culture have a primary responsibility there? Is it politicians? Is it spiritual leaders? Do you know what I'm saying? Like who are, I do. Is it, or is it just all of the above? Do we all like, or is it anybody who has the, the strength of vision and strength of character to step up and start doing this? Like, I'm wondering how does it happen? You know, I do think artists play a key role. And I think that that's historically true over eons because artists are the people who imagine and reimagine and de-imagine realities. And I mean all kinds of art, not just writing. And so I think there's literally a special, not pressure or burden, but a special role for us. Um, but it would involve pulling away from oh, the market and capitalism as the only way in which art can travel. Um, but I don't even think it's, it's necessarily up to a specific kind of heroic person or figure. I definitely don't think it's politicians, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think it's up to ordinary people to bring existence back to ourselves in the way we understand our own relationship to the planet and to each other. And in that sense, I don't think it's some specialized kind of person. I think it's all of us on a very base level. I think it starts there. And perhaps we would ask different things of the people who are supposed to represent us or the people who rise above us because they have certain strengths or abilities. But in the end, it's just us. It's always been us. And somehow we've, we've sort of given over all, all our agency to this other idea, which is that someone's going to save us. I don't think anybody's going to save us. We got to save ourselves. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I guess that's a good place to end. And <laughs> Boy, that sounded like a perfect ending. <laughs> it did really. I mean, like what else can you say? We've got to save ourselves. I think that, uh, I think there is some truth to that though. Like getting to the idea of not like this, like, a, like this idea of the savior, you know, the, mm -hmm. whether it's Jesus or some God or person, mm -hmm. Or a politician or whoever is going to lead us out of the wilderness and into a, into a better life. Like it's really about communities of people. I yep. think, you know, like starting with yourselves, but we also have to find, I, I think it really gains power and, and impact when we have communities of people who are able to harness collective power. Right. Uh, especially on a planet. I mean, and it would make sense that that would be the case, especially since we are no going to, we, we have 7 billion people on the planet now. It can't just be one dude or one woman. No, <laughs> no. And the idea that it ever was, was just a story anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you put it perfectly. It's going to, yes, yes. And which by the way, if we were 
reconnected to one another in smaller communities and trying to figure out how to make that cross global, we would behaving, be behaving exactly like the cosmos does. So get your Carl Sagan out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> get your Stephen Hawking's out. Get your Neil deGrasse Tyson That's on your right. on your DVR. And by the way, I have T-shirts of all of those people. <laughs> I think I think they've <laughs> they also have little planted seeds in the Joan book because I, they are beloved to me. <laughs> well, I want to say that you should not be surprised, Lydia, if tonight, as you drift off to sleep, Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's a, fine with a, me. Appears to you. So hot. Ba bathed in holy light. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I congratulate you on uh, all the success you're having. And uh, I just love talking with you. It's always such a pleasure. And I wish you uh, the very best. For me too, Brad. I can't wait till we cross paths again. All right, folks, there you go. That is Lydia Yuknovich. Her new novel is called The Book of Joan, available now from Harper. You can follow her on Facebook. You can find her on Twitter. Her handle is at Lydia Yuknovich, and her website is LydiaYuknovich.net. If you like this interview, if you enjoy this podcast and you want to support it, you can do that over at Patreon.com slash OtherPPLPod. That's Patreon.com slash OtherPPLPod. You can also support the show via PayPal. There's a link at the show's official website in the sidebar. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. This podcast has its own free app. All episodes of this show are free. Do you know that? The app is free. The episodes are free. You can stream it online. You can stream it via the app, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, what have you. Always enjoyable talking to Lydia. She just keeps writing. Making books. I'm a very punctual person. I take pride in being on time. I take pride in if I tell you that I'm going to be somewhere and then I'm going to do something that I do it. Like, oh, I'm going to call you at 430. I'll call you right at 430. Ask anybody who's ever done this show remotely. If I, you know, like a phone interview or a Skype interview. Very punctual human being. I don't understand... Like, I understand that sometimes life, you know, deals you a curveball. And you... Did I just mix metaphors? It deals you a curveball? It throws you a curveball. You have to be late or delay or cancel. I get that that stuff happens every once in a while. It happens to me every once in a while. But when it persistently happens to you, you got a problem. There's no integrity in that. Constantly late. Oh, sorry, I'm a half hour late. For dinner. Hope your food isn't cold. Drives me crazy. Just be on time. Just be like, just let you make an agreement with somebody. It's an agreement. <laughs> Am I crazy? I don't want to be too uptight about it. I mean, it's a few minutes late is fine. Or just text. You know, I don't know. Be on time. Do what you say you're going to do. 
I also have mentioned on this program before that I like to have my house very clean and that I fantasize about living in a minimalist house that has polished concrete floors and no furniture. (laughs) 